You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Empire and Ecologies, Trans-Imperial, Trans-Historical and Trans-Regional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century. This symposium took place on the 1st and 2nd of July 2021 and was funded by the UCD Humanities Institute's seed funding scheme and the European Research Council through the South Hem Project. The symposium concluded with a roundtable on methodologies on extractivism. The roundtable featured Sukanya Banerjee, Elizabeth Miller, Jennifer Wenzel, Simon Jackson and Katyun Shafi. The roundtable was chaired by John Brannigan. Um, a very warm welcome to everyone joining us today for this final roundtable session of the Empire and Ecology Symposium. And um, the virtual nature of this symposium means that we have friends and colleagues joining us from all around the world, from where the day is uh, just dawning to the dead of night. Uh, so you're very welcome, all of you. Um, this is just, uh, I suppose, one small way in which we're reminded of the many different planetary and local realities uh, that we inhabit. Now, my name is John Brannigan, and I'm head of the uh, UCD School of English Drama and Film. And I'm chairing this roundtable in the absence of our wonderful colleague, Sheree Deckard, who's not able to be here. And we send Sheree our very best wishes and hope that she'll be able to, to listen in. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome our distinguished participants to this roundtable, which will focus on extractivism and particularly on methodologies for researching and critiquing extractivism. And as a term, I suppose, which has become very familiar in eco-criticism, as well as more broadly in anti-capitalist movements and critiques, extractivism is a malleable term which obviously is rooted in a description and analysis of the dependence of capitalism on uh, the extraction and depletion of resources from the earth and the oceans, um, oil and minerals and metals and fish, etc., but extends much more widely to the impacts of this ideology and these practices upon communities, um, human, non-human, more than human communities and indeed to the social, economic, and cultural relations which are built by and around the structures of extractivism. So our speakers for this roundtable are all very familiar and distinguished in the study of empire and ecologies, and I'm really delighted that they're able to join us. Uh, each of the roundtable speakers will have seven to eight minutes each to present on any aspect of their work that relates to the theme of methodologies for analyzing extractivism. And I hope they'll forgive me for uh, keeping my introductions uh, short um, for each speaker. And that's because uh, we're already familiar with your work and we want to hear from you and spend more time in discussion uh, and conversation with you. So I'll try and keep the introductions uh, short. Um, we have five speakers. We were due to have six, but unfortunately, Professor Krishnan has not been able to, to join us, um, so we'll have a little bit more time perhaps for discussion. Um, so once we've 
um, heard from each speaker, we'll have around 20 to 30 minutes uh, for discussion arising from the ideas and questions which they raise, um, a sort of roundtable discussion, uh, which will focus on extractivism and our methodologies for analyzing it in its various forms. And then we'll have some time at the end for questions from the audience. So please use the, the Q&A box um, in, in your, uh, at the base, of, well, at, at least on my screen, it's at the base of the screen. Uh, so click on Q&A, put in uh, any questions that you'd like to ask uh, to the speakers individually or collectively. And um, then we'll try and get to you as many questions as we can um, at the end. And you can post them at any time during the roundtable, and we'll try to, to get them at the end. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to turn to our speakers. And again, we just ask for about seven to eight minutes of just to, to give us an outline of your thoughts. Um, I'm going to start with Associate Professor Sukanya Banerjee, uh, who's an Associate Professor at Berkeley, where she works on the literature and culture of Victorian Britain and its empire. And she's best known, I suppose, for her work becoming imperial citizens, uh, Indians in the late Victorian Empire, which was published by Duke University Press in 2010. And she's co-editor of the New Roots in Diaspora Studies, which was published in 2012, and is currently working on a book that's tentatively called Loyalty and the Making of the Modern, a Trans-Imperial System, and is also looking forward to a future book-length project on Victorian eco-colonialisms. So, Professor Banerjee, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, um, John, for the kind introduction, and many thanks to Megan and Sarah for organizing this event. I'm very grateful to be part of it. Um, so my area of research is Victorian Britain and its empire, and I'm particularly interested in the literatures and histories of colonialism, especially with reference to South Asia. As we know, one of the signal features of critical environmentalist scholarship has been the twinning of colonialism with questions of ecology. It is impossible now not to read colonialism without simultaneously reading its ecological imperative or effect. However, even as the ecological term marks a welcome shift from the anthropocentric terms of post-colonial analysis, I wonder if the binaristic paradigm of the former, that is to say its dyadic framing of the colonizer and colonized, is not replicated in some ways in contemporary eco-thinking, in as much as colonized constituencies, indigenous communities, the global south, are posited in primarily salvific terms as repositories of traditional alternate and prior knowledges that are essential, instrumental to our continued planetary survival. This is not in any way to turn away from such knowledges or de-emphasize their importance, and I want to be very clear about that. Rather, it is to consider how we can negotiate a methodological approach that is sensitive to marginalization or erasure that eco-colonialism has brought about, but an approach that is also alert to fresh possibilities of inquiry that do not lapse into overdetermined or instrumentalized processes of knowledge retrieval that enact their own extractivist logic. My reference to extractivism here, of course, metaphorizes the term, which is a risk that the term runs 
given how easily it lends itself to various acts of wrenching, expropriation, or drawing out of resources, be, be they material or ideational. In that respect, extractivism takes on a capaciousness that often evacuates it of its material reference. But for someone studying the 19th century, 19th century Britain and its empire, it is especially difficult to overlook the material histories of extractivism. In her important book, Extraction Ecologies, which is forthcoming this fall, my co-panelist Elizabeth Miller, and I urge you to read this book, it's a brilliant book. Miller points to the 19th century as a period when Britain, as she puts it, and I quote, came to understand itself as an empire thoroughly dependent on extraction. An extraction-based industrial society irretrievably bound up with the mining of underground material, unquote. Although Miller's book focuses primarily, though not exclusively, on the literary implications of mining, her focus on the subterranean strata makes me also wonder about the extractivist impact of agricultural regimes on soil composition, even just a few inches below the ground. The finitude of mineral and fossil resources, of course, bears more heavily on the exhaustion of resources wrought by mining, but the incremental depletion of soil nutrients affected by intensive farming or the transformation from forests and swamps to agricultural land similarly drain and alter the geophysical environment in ways that significantly reform social and political relations. Or, as it is being increasingly suggested, social and political relations are significantly formulated at these nodal points of extraction. Nigel Clark points to Lewis Mumford's tracing of early instances of organized action to minor strikes in 16th century Europe, for instance. Or more recently, Tariq Ali invokes Sven Beckett's notion of the global countryside to point to the peasantization of communities across the colonized tropics, compelled to grow cash crops to meet imperial demand in the 19th and early 20th century. Taken together, both these examples bring several layers of the geostrata into play in a way that puts all human life, as Nigel Clark points out, all organismic life in the midst of stratal formation and deformation. For Clark, this is true even when we are not, as he says, consciously digging into soil or its substrate. An observation that ironically clarifies the extent to which an attentiveness to the histories of extraction only lays bare the conditions and limits of our existence. That being the case, it is surprising that our critical gaze has been more horizontally inclined. In studying empire and ecology, we retrace the winding circuits of commodity production and circulation already etched by earlier scholarship on globalization and transnationalism. This is unavoidable, of course, given the pathways of production and consumption, but what if we tarried a while at the points of extraction, 
What if we did not feel compelled to follow the commodities through their journeys back to the global north? What if we remained grounded, looked downward? A call for groundedness, of course, necessitates a heightened vigilance against reductive claims of nativism or autochthony. But if such a call in any way revivifies the density of what might be recalled as place, then it does so with the foreknowledge that place is always already written over by the non-local and exceptionalizing it in the name of the local most often signals a misguided, if not dangerous attempt. For me, a trans-imperial analysis has been helpful in negotiating this double valence of place. In studying 19th century cotton cultivation in India, for instance, a trans-imperial frame enables me to attend to the specificities of the fundamental mismatch between soil content and fiber quality that was the scandal of cotton cultivation in 19th century India. It helped me do so, however, without losing track of the systemic interrelationality of the multiple imperial constituencies that in fact affected that mismatch. But to consider the extent to which soil content and management affected the particular variety of cotton that was produced, which is to say coarse cotton, and to consider the extent to which coarse cotton or khadi went on to become a potent symbol of the Indian nationalist movement, is to study the ecologies of cotton very literally ground up. How might this verticality bear on literary study? We have learned to take measure of the horizontal through various conceptualizations of the global, the planetary, or through notions of diversity, pluralism, et cetera, of cultures and species. Can and do the same framing categories apply when we confront the verticality of geostructures? Should we reframe them? How? These are the questions that extractivism throws up for me, and groundedness serves as but one vantage point for beginning to think about them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Banerjee, and um, some very, very useful and fruitful thoughts for us to consider, and hopefully we'll get to converse about in the uh, the roundtable um, discussion after this. Many thanks for that. I'm going to move on now to um, Professor Elizabeth Carolyn Miller, uh, who's Professor of English at UC Davis, uh, which we like to call the other UCD. Um, her scholarly interests include 19th and early 20th century literature of Britain and the British Empire, eco-criticism and environmental studies, uh, gender studies and media studies, and she's published uh, many books including Slow Print, Literary Radicalism and Late Victorian Print Culture, Framed, The New Woman Criminal in British Culture and the Fin de Siècle, and a special issue of Victorian Studies, which I think many people here will know, on climate change and Victorian studies from 2018. Uh, she's also published on William Morris and George Bernard Shaw. And the recent book from which we've already heard, uh, thanks to Professor Banerjee, is Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, 
which is due out, mark it in your diaries now, October 2021. So we're going to hand you over to Professor Miller. Thank you very much to the organizers of this roundtable, Megan, Sarah, and John. I'm uh, really happy to be here. And uh, thanks to um, my fellow panelists for being here as well and to the audience members for coming. I also uh, wanted to uh, thank Sue Kanya for uh, her wonderful remarks and also uh, for being such a generous reader and colleague and very uh, lucky to have been able to develop this most recent book in dialogue with uh, Sue Kanya and other um, scholars in my field. So thanks to her. Um, so I, I've just completed a book, as um, John and Sukanya noted, uh, called Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion. And I really appreciate the invitation to reflect today on the methods and frameworks that I use to investigate extractivism in this book. Um, to begin with the question that Sarah posed for the panelists about um, the frameworks that we use to approach extractivism, um, I was thinking about the fact that my book opens with a poem about Neolithic flint mines and moves from there to the International Commission on Stratigraphy. I've never begun a study with such a wide temporal frame, and my geographical frame in this book is also wider than um, I've previously used. And it extends well beyond Britain to explore its resource frontier and formal and informal empire. So the first thing I wanted to say is just that for me, a focus on extractivism has transformed the frames of my research. And while I still examine a delimited period, I um, have found the need to position this period within the broader context of earth history, empire, and the history of capitalism. So uh, various forms of uh, longer historical um, and temporal uh, frameworks. The specific period on which my book focuses begins in the early 1830s with the decisive shift to steam power in British manufacturing and distribution and ends in the late 1930s with the dawn of the nuclear era. What I hope to capture with this chronology is a period when Britain came to understand itself. And I have to apologize here, I'm using <laughs> a quotation from my book that Sukanya also used. <laughs> but uh, a period when Britain came to understand itself as an empire thoroughly dependent on extraction an extraction-based society bound up with the mining of underground material with no viable alternative capable of preserving existing social relations. In this period, extractivism shaped literary form and genre, just as literary form and genre contributed to new ways of imagining an extractable earth. I take form and genre to be important objects of environmental analysis because they are epistemological structures that embed are fundamental conceptual formations. And what is more, they are mobile and repeatable across time and space. Ursula Le Guin imagined stories as, quote, capacious bags for collecting, carrying, and telling the stuff of living, which recently prompted Donna Haraway to wonder what the carrier bag for terraforming, as she put it, might include. In studying literature and extraction, I concern myself with this carrier bag for terraforming, because of the durational qualities of language and form, literature engages with environmental materiality across time, and thus it's a crucial archive for understanding extractivism. My methodology in this study is premised on the idea that extraction of underground mineral resources, not only coal, but also gold, tin, iron, copper, silver, et cetera, can be conceived of as a singular activity and that this activity of extraction was bound up with a new cluster of socio-environmental conditions. 
extractivism. I use the term extractivism to name a complex of cultural, discursive, economic, environmental, and ideological factors related to the extraction of underground resources on a large industrial scale. While there were important differences between, say, coal mining and gold mining, two major similarities yoke together these various forms of mineral resource extraction as a singular activity in the industrial imperial era. First, extraction of all kinds relied on the use of steam for the draining of mines, crushing of ore, and transport of commodities. Virtually every technological component of the extraction supply chain was accelerated phenomenally by steam power. And thus the extraction, the accelerated extraction of coal in the early 19th century led to more intense exploitation of all subsurface resources and vice versa. As Rolf Peter C. Fairley puts it, quote, the superabundance of fossil energy put metals into frenzied circulation as the metabolic, metabol sorry, metabolic basis of industrialization. Secondly, all such underground resources were connected by their material finitude and finitude and non-reproducibility non above all distinguish mineral resource mining as an extractive process. Extractive industry can never benefit from regeneration or replenishment, but can only move on to a new vein or site. The term extraction, of course, is now often used to describe other industries besides mining, industries such as fishing and forestry that likewise involve the removal of raw material from a receptacle where it is ostensibly embedded, trees from a forest or fish from the ocean, for example. These industries are also subject to limits. Old growth trees do not regenerate on human timescales, as Richard Powers has recently narrated so brilliantly in the novel The Overstory, and worldwide fish populations have, of course, been decimated by centuries of overfishing, as uh, W. Jeffrey Bolster recounts, for example, in his book, The Mortal Sea. Forestry and fishing thus might seem to rely on the harvesting of finite resources in the same way as mining. And many now fear, too, that soil fertility, um, which Sukhani was just speaking about, and biodiversity are likewise finite resources subject to extraction. It's not unreasonable, indeed, to say that we are now faced with apparent limits for almost every aspect of the natural world that once seemed cyclical, air, water, soil, life itself. And I think this is part of um, what uh, the last few commenters were talking about in terms of the expansion of the term extractivism and um, uh, use in so many domains. Despite this current crisis of regeneration that seems to touch nearly every part of the natural world, my work has focused on the extraction of underground mineral resources because um, in the context of historical thought from the 1830s to the 1930s, the mining industry presented the overwhelmingly dominant example of resource finitude. Um, from their perspective, trees and fish could, after all, grow and reproduce and be subject to reproductive engineering. Golden tin could not. In the industrial era, metal and mineral resources were defined in economic terms by their special lack of regenerative capacity. And this is part of why I'm interested in them. As W. Stanley Jevons put it in his 1865 book, The Coal Question, for example, quote, a farm, however far pushed, will under proper cultivation continue to yield forever a constant crop. But in a mine, there is no reproduction. And the produce once pushed to the utmost will soon begin to fail and sink to zero. As this suggests, 
exhaustion emerged in this era as a distinctive trajectory of extraction-based life. An extraction-based society, economically grounded in the extraction of finite materials, was understood to mean a society that was, in a new way, unsustainable for the long run. Thus, the literature of the industrial era was in the remarkable position of confronting ide ideationally the mode of life that we all experience today, one that proceeds by depleting the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Miller, for those thoughts and really interesting questions uh, to engage with, which I hope we'll get to later as well. Just to remind uh, everybody here that um, our next speaker would have been Professor Madhu Krishnan, uh, but she's not able to join us, unfortunately, today. Um, so we're going to move on now to Associate Professor Jennifer Wenzel, uh, who's Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature and of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies at Columbia University. So very niche areas of interest, um, very narrow field. Um, her monograph is uh, Bulletproof, Afterlives of Anti-Colonial Prophecy in South Africa and Beyond, which is published in 2009. Uh, with Imre Zeman and Patricia Yeager. She also co-edited a book that many people here will know, Fueling Culture, 101 Words for Energy and Environment from 2017. And in 2019, she published her new monograph, The Disposition of Nature, Environmental Crisis and World Literature. Professor Menzel, Wenzel, sorry. Uh, thanks very much, uh, John, and I'd like to thank you for stepping in as chair and also uh, Sarah Komen and uh, Megan Kuster for the invitation to participate in this roundtable. I'm honored to be included and excited for the discussion, and I also want to apologize for reading from my com computer screen, which I never do, uh, but I'm away from home without access to a printer. In methodological and disciplinary terms, I'm speaking here as a literary critic and a scholar of environmental and energy humanities. It's from the perspective of those interdisciplinary subfields, and particularly my work on literature and oil, that I have thought about resource extraction and extractivism. Some of my remarks are drawn from an afterword that Imre Zeman and I wrote for a recent special issue of Textual Practice on extractivism and literary studies, in which we tease apart the differences between resource extraction as a practice and extractivism as an ideology. In order to distinguish my thoughts from what Imra and I wrote together, I, I will alternate between I and we. I must confess to a deep ambivalence about the increasing role of extractivism as a concept and topic in literary and cultural studies. On the one hand, I see extractivism as part of a necessary conversation about what I call the disposition of nature, by which I mean how ideas about what nature is are bound up with how it is inhabited and used. Extractivism is one instance of a, a sorry, of a particular understanding of nature as a resource. One instance of what I call a resource logic in which humans understand nature to be something other than themselves disposed for their use and subject to their control. When nature appears before us solely as natural resource, other logics, other kinds of relation and value, ecological, cultural, aesthetic, become difficult to think and practice. 
the difficulty of speaking about nature as something other than a resource. The way that the phrase, the, sorry, the way that the phrase natural resources seems to offer itself as natural fact rather than historical and ideological artifact. This difficulty demonstrates why extractivism is important for literary and cultural studies. For me, the fundamental disciplinary questions are these. How are literature and other cultural imagining complicit in resource logics? How do they naturalize certain ideas about nature and make other ideas about nature difficult to think? Methodologically speaking, the key insight is not to assume that literature or literary studies are somehow the solution to problems like extractivism, but instead to recognize the literary as imbricated both ideologically and materially within structures and processes that might be described as extractive. This dual imbrication underwrites my impatience with approaches to literary studies, which are merely thematic, which emphasize texts that are explicitly about extractivism and whose method focuses on paraphrasing that aboutness, presumably with the assumption that reading these texts somehow does something to stop extractivism. To my mind, the most incisive work in literary studies combines, on the one hand, careful attention to matters of literary form, rhetoric and intertextuality, in other words, old school attention not to what is said, but how it's said, and on the other hand, innovative strategies for grappling with the materiality of the literary in the, in the manufacture of paper, ink, screens, and processors, and the broader infrastructural and energy regimes in which cultural objects circulate, fueled by substances extracted from the Earth's geological depths. I'm inspired by the reflexive materialism of scholars like Stephanie Lemonager at Oregon and Christine Okoth at Warwick, who have begun to think through what I think of as the double bind of environment, energy, and, and extraction in relation to the interpretive disciplines. On the one hand, these disciplines are well-suited to generate critical insights that might help transform entrenched narratives and relations. Yet on the other hand, they remain embedded within the built environments and systems that are, are themselves the object of critique. I said earlier that I was ambivalent about the increasing prominence of extractivism in literary studies, so let me outline briefly some of our misgivings. We worry about a certain conceptual creep, metaphorical inflation, and loss of analytical precision in the use of the term extractivist and humanities discourse. And we've heard some of this ambivalence and concern already this morning or afternoon. Whereas resource extraction names a particular moment and aspect of economic production, the term extractivist is increasingly used as a synonym for capitalism itself, writ large, and more broadly, as a synonym for any kind of exploitation or instrumentalization, whether of non-human nature or of humans. At its very worst, extractivist risks becoming the epithet du jour, taking its place alongside alongside neo-colonial, sorry, taking its place alongside neoliberal and settler colonial in a litany of exploitative badness, a mere adjectival gesture to signal one's political rectitude. In methodological terms, our more substantive concerns about the proliferation of extractivism talk are about whether materiality actually matters. To take an example from the energy humanities, we wonder about the designation of hydroelectric, hydroelectric power projects as extractivist. 
While such projects certainly entail myriad forms of harm, they are not ruthlessly attritional in the same way as the removal of non-renewable minerals from the subsoil. We want to think with precision about how these harms differ from clear-cutting forests or digging holes in the ground. While the analytical force of extractivism in its original discursive concept, uh, context of Latin American political economy derives from its insistence on the indispensability of matter, in other words, the stuff of nature upon which capitalism does its work of accumulating surplus value, the increasing ubiquity of extractivism in humanities discourse involves various kinds of dematerialization, often through metaphorizations that aren't recognized as such. And Professor Banerjee gestured toward this earlier. It's one thing to recognize the embeddedness of scholarly production within broader modes of economic production that are dependent on resource extraction. But when scholarly practices and methods themselves are dubbed extractive, we want to re reflect on the implications of that often unthought act of metaphorization and dematerialization. Consider, for example, the proliferation of mining metaphors to describe the acts of reading and interpretation. Is reading really so similar to mining? Is, read, is meaning really a finite, non-renewable resource whose production depletes the source and immiserates those at the site of extraction? Metaphor may be the stock in trade of literary studies, but it poses a particular occupational hazard for literary critics, myself included, who turn toward disciplines like anthropology, political ecology, or science and technology studies for new concepts and modes of thinking to undergird our analyses. Without circumspection about the tricky relationship between materiality and metaphor, critics risk reducing the hard-won insights and concepts of other disciplines to mere metaphor in a mode at once underthought and over-imagined and, dare I say, extractive. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Wenzel. Really, really interesting. And I shall never use textual extracts in my classes anymore without thinking of your talk. So thank you very much for that. Um, I'm reminded also of Steve Mentz's um, line about language being our one inexhaustible resource uh, as well. So many thanks for that. Um, we'll move on to Dr. Simon Jackson, who's lecturer in Modern Middle Eastern History and Director for the Center for Modern and Contemporary History at the University of Birmingham. And his current uh, book project concerns the discourse and politics of economic development in the French League of Nations mandate in Syria and Lebanon. And uh, with Alana O'Malley, he's co-editor of the collection, The Institution of International Order from the League of Nations to the UN, uh, published in 2018, uh, Dr. Jackson. Okay, thank you very much, um, Professor Brannigan, for that kind introduction. Can you can you hear me okay? Great. Um, I also wanted to thank the organizers and my fellow participants on the round table. I'm really honored also to be um, a part of it. I've got a few slides to show. Um, I'm gonna give an overview of uh, the project that my thoughts arise from. And then at the end, I'll talk about what methodological contributions I think it can maybe give rise to. My uh, project um, is on phosphate. And um, I wanted to begin with the present day. Um, this is phosphate extraction in Morocco in the Western Sahara today. Top left photo of the large uh, digger is uh, at Khuribga in Morocco. And then the conveyor belt um, in the center and the walled um, 
uh, mining town are in Western Sahara. And I think, by the way, um, the status of uh, Morocco in Western Sahara as um, what Lino Camprubi has called uh, Africa's last empire um, raises um, important questions of, um, of ethics and the way in which a focus on extraction and extractivism can kind of disrupt and speak to present day politics uh, and also um, to uh, planetary crisis. I'm trying to connect there with some of the rubric that we were offered um, by the organizers. Uh, why phosphates? Um, well, it's an important um, chemical contributor to agrochemical agriculture and food production from the 19th century onwards, but especially after 1945, it's a part of NPK fertilizer, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. I focus on phosphorus. Um, and um, really from the uh, late 19th century, the 1880s, it becomes um, uh, sourced, first of all, from organic guano, especially from the Pacific, and then from rock phosphate to synthesize chemical fertilizer. And you can see that in the, in the graph there, um, the, 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 the sort of dark red uh, is rock phosphate as a, a contributor to uh, world phosphorus use. Um, it's very important in breaking local fertilizer chains, moving plant nutrients around the world, um, and generating the, the system of global agriculture that we have today. Uh, it's also, um, and this speaks to some of the previous contributions, a finite resource. And it's, it's, it's kind of presented and branded as such by um, the Moroccan National Phosphate Company. You can see the website um, screen grab from uh, from their uh, from their website there on the on the um, on the slide. Um, Seventy percent of current global reserves are in Morocco and Western Sahara. Ocean floor mining is likely to come into play in the future, but um, the, the the Moroccan National Mining Company really places an emphasis on um, the rise of world population and the declining amount of arable land uh, per capita. Um, with these kind of moving stats on their on their website. So um, this is the reason why this is an important resource. Um, and in my work, I try to uh, look at the uh, colonial um, origins and history of um, phosphate production. And I focus on uh, North Africa as a region. And you can see in these two maps, um, one map, the, uh, uh, the um, phosphate mines here in um, Western Sahara and Morocco, then also in Southeastern Algeria and in Southwestern Tunisia. Um, and until the 1950s, all of these were part of a larger French colonial unit. The key arguments I make are um, significantly about space and about circulation. So um, in my work, I try to look at French colonial North Africa as a region. Um, a lot of historiography on, um, on phosphate and um, agrochemical agriculture from the 19th century onwards um, is increasingly global um, or, or maritime. There's a lot of great work on the Pacific, for example, and guano by Greg Cushman and others. And what I'm trying to do is, um, is to look at uh, French North Africa as a region as a way of mediating between uh, these kind of larger analytical spaces and local histories with their emphasis on complexity and contingency. And so I try to examine the different phosphate mines, mining towns as a kind of archipelago. This might speak, I think, to some of um, John's work actually on... Um, on the British Isles as an archipelago. Um, and I try to present these mining towns as both interconnected and mutually constitutive, but also um, always embedded in their own respective hinterlands. And uh, in my research, I try to track, um, uh, particularly so far in um, French colonial archives, the circulation of legal objects, capital, forms of expertise, but also racialized labor practices between the different mines of this archipelago. And you can see in the image here, 
uh, from Khrubka in the 1950s, uh, the racialized division of labor um, at, the, at, the, at the face of the phosphate mine. Here are some, um, some further images of Khrubka in Morocco in the 1950s. A um, couple of points that are important here. Um, first of all, um, in Morocco, it's the state, the French colonial state that leads extractivism. And in particular, it leads it in the 1920s as a means of recovery from crisis, especially the crisis of the First World War. And French imperial thinkers, uh, but also mining companies, uh, present phosphate mining as a, a way of responding to the disaster of the First World War and the newly revealed need for uh, imperial autarky and forms of kind of defensive resource management. The other thing that's important here is that Khoribga's um, uh, uh, phosphate ore was, had particular properties. It's very rich in phosphorus and it is crumbly and soft as compared to the massive hard rock formations found in Tunisia and Algeria. And it's these properties that allowed it to become dominant both during the colonial period and then after independence when Morocco became the pivotal global producer of, um, of, of phosphate for fertilizer. So um, what I want to bring in here is the agency of um, the non-human and the agency of the of the rock phosphate itself. Okay, and then this is the last slide. Um, so in terms of the methodologies um, that we, we can think about for analyzing extractivism, um, four points, and I've developed these in the article. Um, you can see the screen grab there on the other side of the slide. First of all, um, I think there's potential for the space of the region as a category and, and, and space of analysis that mediates between um, local complexity and contingency national um, histories, which can often be teleological, and imperial or global um, approaches, which have the advantage of facilitating programmatic analysis sometimes, but can also um, be too sprawling. And um, as one of the previous contributors said, can be too um, outwardly pointed and pointed towards the global north. I advanced the idea of, a, of, a, of an archipelago of enclaves as a way of examining a kind of dispersed commodity frontier that has mutually constitutive effects while remaining embedded in uh, respective hinterlands. Um, I also put forward the need for a multifaceted account of power that's capable of accommodating legal frameworks, uh, for example, the development of concessions to extract, class, race, and gender dynamics, imperial, military, or commercial logics, as well as the power of non-human forces. And here again, there's the, uh, the soft, crumbly uh, phosphate rock of um, Moroccan uh, phosphate mines. And then last of all, something I think that's uh, kind of arisen already in some of the presentations, the tension between complexification and contingency and um, the enduring need for programmatic and theoretically overarching methods. And here I think uh, there's a potential for approaches such as global microhistory, uh, but also global approaches to indigenous agencies and epistemologies. So I'll stop there and uh, looking forward to the uh, further conversation. Many thanks, uh, Dr. Jackson. Really, really interesting there. And particularly interesting to think about the sort of scales and the dynamics of power uh, that you're mapping there, and especially to think about the sort of um, previous colonial histories that this is being mapped onto as well. So really interesting. Uh, many thanks for that. And we'll come back to that in our discussion as well. And so finally, to our last speaker on the um, the, the roundtable, uh, which is Associate Professor Katayun Shafai, uh, who's Associate Professor in the History of the Islamic World at the University of Warwick. And her research focuses on the history and politics of large-scale infrastructures in the modern Middle East and the kinds of expert knowledge generated about them, um, particularly those concerning uh, energy networks. And um, I would refer you, if you don't know it already, to her wonderful monograph, Machineries of Oil, an Infrastructural History of BP in Iran, which was published in uh, 2018. 
So yes, thank you very much, John. Um, and, and nice to meet you all and learn about your work. Thank you to Megan and Sarah for inviting me as well. Um, so while the term extractivism is not a notion that I have um, explicitly used in my work, my immediate um, impression is that it's interesting and peculiar at the same time um, in terms of using it to draw links between natural resources, the earth and the deeply local. Um, as, as humans obviously are taking part in disrupting climatic, ecological and, and I'm sorry, geological and evolutionary processes um, of this age of this age of the so-called Anthropocene. Um, the obviously the effects and futures of these um, extractive fossil fuel-based um, industries are highly um, unstable. Humans um, appear to have transformed themselves into this a kind of geologic force that's impacting the environment with severe um, severe consequences for the world's sustainability. And many of you have, um, you know, suggested and already said that post-colonial historians are now arguing um, that what scientists are saying about uh, climate change challenges ideas about the human um, that usually sustain the discipline of history, but also challenge analytical strategies that post-colonial and post-imperial historians um, have been using and had first deployed in response to um, the post-war era of decolonization and globalization. Um, so scholars in science and technology studies, um, which my work draws from, have for a number of decades argued that the world has never operated on such dualist terms. Um, and some of you have mentioned this of humans or human history versus nature um, or extractivism, even though modern politics um, has produced this effect through various forms of technical, scientific and economic expertise, representation and practice. Um, so obviously these debates are indicative of our awareness and, and, and the pursuit of these kinds of workshops that our modes of explanation are limited and we need to develop new tools um, for addressing contemporary crises in the so-called global north and global south. So in other words, thinking about the socio-technical mechanics um, of extractivism offers an, another way of achieving this. Um, in the age of fossil fuels, um, countries um, in the so-called global south, particularly in the Middle East, served as laboratories for producing knowledge and know-how on nature and about society. Um, and so many of, uh, of the scholars in, in my field have drawn on these tools from SDS to track this process and introduce new puzzles um, concerning large-scale infrastructures, um, concerning the multinational corporations, state formation, uh, techno-scientific expertise, and democracy. This has also involved factoring practices um, of international regulatory regimes and institutions of economic governance, such as the World Bank, the IMF, and the United Nations. So taking seriously um, the materiality of this history within the Middle East, in my case, obviously demands a rethinking of the fixity of concepts, which again, many of you have touched on, such as nature, technology, and the state and one that also um, places the non-human at the center of the analysis of power to rethink um, the history and politics of energy and these large-scale projects of development. So the SDS approach um, also enables the consideration of how um, these different kinds of extractive um, infrastructures within different kinds of energy systems, as an example, can enable, transform, and inhibit ways of thinking and, li and living collectively. 
Um, so if we think of this as a kind of energetics of democracy in relation to extractivism, um, you know, I, I, I have in my first book drawn on the work of Timothy Mitchell and the notion of carbon democracy um, to, to think about how these concerns require us to think in socio-technical terms about the origins of democracy and its future prospects. Um, and, and that helps us to open up important connections between energy extraction, uh, democracy, and questions of territory in the Middle East. Um, we know that the carbon-based energy system took form in the age of modern empire and the age of democratization, which clashed as new political forces um, depended on the concentration of, lar of large populations in cities um, and in manufacturing. And so the materiality of fossil fuels was in fact connected um, with the rise of mass democracy because men, most of the world's industrial regions grew near supplies of coal and thrived within networks um, that moved coal to railways, ports, cities, and sites of manufacturing and electric power generation, um, which we know were also sites of intense labor activism. So a new kind of political power was gained from that positioning of labor at these various nodes in the energy system to disrupt energy supplies and make demands for a better life. Um, but in contrast, um, as I've discovered um, in my first, I had discovered in my first project, oil socio-technical properties significantly reduced the democratic potential of oil workers and oil producing states in the Middle East to reconfigure the energy system toward more equitable forms of control. So rather than opposing mechanisms for democracy and mechanisms um, for carbon energy extraction, or studying how one impacts the other from the outside, the two mechanisms um, are inextricable. So an illustrative example of this process is evident um, from my work in the local history of building the first oil industry in the Middle East in Southwest Iran, where the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which we know today as BP, um, was first built in the early 20th century. Um, and so <clears throat> I took seriously the socio-technical properties of the oil to argue that producing, transporting, and selling it from a remote corner of Iran produced numerous problems, technical, social, and political. Um, and so British investors, technologists, government officials, and oil workers battled to define what would become one of the largest oil corporations in the world, which was a new kind of political actor in the 20th century. And many of the conflicts involved um, the authority in terms of concession contracts, um, the wording of these concession contracts, the management of workers and production rates, and the controversies that were generated all contributed to um, constituting and co-producing the Iranian state, as well as the forms of organization of the largest oil corporations. And in each crisis that um, I tracked, um, the strategy followed by the British oil company centered on defining the terms of many non-human actors. For example, uh, there were a number of formulas or calculations that were used to determine shares of profits and other areas of dispute, such as labor recruitment. And so these kinds of calculating technologies could be put to work um, to manage political uncertainties and unruly actors such as the oil, the oil workers, and the claims um, of the sovereign government over a natural resource. So um, the analysis highlights the ways in which the oil company, which um, I understand is a kind of extended machinery um, of extractivism, used other measures to resolve 
critical moments, such as engaging with um, international law, disciplinary regimes, economic sanctions and boycotts, and ultimately the engineered overthrow of the Iranian government in 1953. Um, so I'll just quickly conclude that tracking the co-construction of human and non-human in the building of carbon-based energy systems, in my case, um, helps make visible how differences in calculative equipment also shape relationships of domination and can provide a point of entry into the analysis of power. The approach um, exposes how the intertwined uh, machinery of carbon-based infrastructure and finance capital gave way to the power of the large-scale multinational corporation. And it's really only by recovering these tools and arguments that are made available for handling modern forms of um, extractive infrastructure and energy system that we can potentially um, build more durable and productive structures for collective life. So I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Professor Shafi. That was really, really interesting. And um, really good to hear that um, discussion or the questions you were asking as well about the relationship with democracy and, and politics with this extractive uh, ideologies and practices as well. So uh, many, many thanks for that. Um, we're going to turn now to our um, roundtable discussion uh, following from those presentations. So um, I'm going to begin by asking our participants if you have questions that you'd like to ask each other. Um, from what you've heard. I just had a question um, to ask of um, Professor Miller. Um, just at the end, I found something very, I heard something very interesting that I wanted to see if you had anything more to say about, and that was um, something about depleting the future. Because I think the concept of future is really interesting and, and the kinds of um, technologies that have been attached to it um, in relation to the extraction of resources, different kinds of resources. So I wondered what you meant or if you wanted, if you could elaborate. Sure, thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm sure like all of us, I was, uh, you know, trying to compress a lot into to seven minutes. So I realized it was a bit um, gestural at the end there. But one of the things that I am interested in in my book and, and that kind of motivated this study is thinking about the um, uh, kind of parallel between, you know, the um, confrontation with extraction-based life in 19th century and the recognition of dependence on a finite resource, you know, that um, would run out eventually. And, um, you know, our, our current moment today um, with climate change and, you know, recognizing that, that every day that we continue in the same way, you know, we're... Um, uh, putting more and more CO2 into the atmosphere that, you know, uh, future generations will have to contend with. So I, I don't see this as like a perfect parallel, but I think it's really interesting that in both of them, um, the, the, it, uh, the, the, the structure is right. That, that, um, that you're dependent on a way of life that is depleting the future, that is diminishing life for future generations. Right. And so, when I'm thinking about genre and literary form and the ways that those, you know, kind of carry over into new periods and so forth, I think one of the things I'm interested in with um, the development of literary forms around industrial extractivism or industrial extraction in the 19th century is um, the way that, you know, our kind of stories, our, our discourse, our narratives, et cetera, 
you know, might have come to like naturalize this way of thinking about the future, right? So, so um, is it possible that we've already sort of become a cut? We had already kind of come become culturally accustomed to this this idea of a, a kind of future depleting system, you know, through this earlier discourse around um, industrial extraction and the transition to extraction based life in the 19th century. So even though you know the the situation isn't exactly the same and the ideas about how you know the future was going to be depleted obviously don't match up exactly um I, I still think you know from the perspective of thinking about culture and and literature that that inheritance is something that we have to contend with thank you are there other questions that participants want to ask of each other yeah dr jackson and then professor wenz uh, thank you very much. I had a couple of questions. Um, one for Professor Banerjee. Um, I was really encouraged and, and stimulated by what you said about the um, about trans-imperial frameworks. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you could say a little more about um, whether and how you think trans-imperial approaches um, might allow for um, more ground-up accounts of extractivism. In my own work, I'm particularly interested in developing a more social history um, approach, uh, bringing back social and labor history into the story, which can very quickly become one about commodity chains and, and, and uh, imperial bureaucracies and global corporations. So your, your point about um, trans-imperial um, frameworks and, and the need to write from the ground up, that, that really struck me. And then for Professors Miller and, and Benzel, um, I come at this from a, from the standpoint of um, French colonial and imperial history, um, and I don't use a lot of literary sources, but I do see a lot of um, bureaucrats and mining engineers trying to write memoirs or bureaucratic memos that have literary tropes informing their construction. And um, so I, I was kind of wondering how maybe... <laughs> Kind of in a very basic way, whether you can point me towards ways in which I can um, bring across insights from um, uh, from literary criticism and the environmental humanities to read those sources um, in in new ways. Yeah. So uh, thank you, uh, Professor Jackson, for for your question, and you know um, I really enjoyed your presentation and everyone's presentation as well, and I have a few questions of my own, but. Um, in terms of the transimperial, uh, for me, thinking about the transimperial is, um, you know, to think about the relation between, say, the North and the South, or the colony and the metropole. Um, in terms of a systematicity, so it's not an optional, arbitrary. Okay, well then, let's look at what how how this plays out in the colony. But you know, there there is a system to, to sort of emphasize the systematicity of it, um, without ceding to a preordained logic of the flow or the, the the inevitability of you know that that sort of return journey or or that uh, you know the, the destination but kind of also to look at uh, the very uh, of what that does not move right. right literally what does not move the immobility so to kind of shift the emphasis from mobility because a lot of the work on empire on you know globalization transnational mm -hmm. has been guided by mobility sort of yes. from very it's been fueled by mobility right uh, but, but 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 to think instead of uh, sedentariness without think you know writing off 
uh, the translocal that always is present. But thinking about that allows for uh, a different kind of analysis, the kind of analysis that you are you're, you're doing with uh, you know with uh, the phosphate mining in 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 Morocco. So yes, yeah, so it's it it really prioritizes uh, the the question of immobility, not seeing that as as a deficit, mm -hmm. but um, as as an alternate critical methodology. So I, I hope that kind of speaks a little bit, but I'm happy to talk more about the trans-imperial. That's really helpful, thank you. I, I think I'll, I'll answer uh, Professor Jackson's question and then ask my own, if that's okay. Um, so I, I really appreciate this question in terms of um, uh, looking uh, at, the, at the use of tropes and, and the deployment of the literary by the personnel of empire, right? And, and it really accords with, I think, my approach to the literary, which is, uh, yeah, I read literary text, but I'm also alert to the workings of the literary wherever I find it. And so I would just say very quickly, that I think an oldie but goodie source on, on this kind of thinking and method is uh, Mary Louise Pratt's Imperial Eyes, uh, which is also uh, trans-imperial. So I, I think that she's, you know, we've been kind of catching up uh, to what uh, to what Mary Louise Pratt was doing uh, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, so I'll try to be brief here because I know that there, there's so much that we could talk about. Um, but I, I just want to acknowledge how how powerful it was uh, for me to hear Liz Miller kind of make this um, periodization uh, between what counts as finite, right, and and maybe therefore what counts as extractive in in different centuries. That was really generative uh, for me, and and I also liked uh, Professor uh, Sheffy's um, kind of. Uh, reminder that the world is not as binary as our frameworks <laughs> might claim that it is. And I'm fascinated uh, and I want to learn more about this, uh, the idea of calculation, um, which uh, I suppose uh, in in the system that that we use is is not not binary but decimal. Um, so um, that that's really generative for me. Um, and I'm afraid I want to go back to uh, maybe what everybody's asking in the same question of a uh, professor Banerjee. Um, uh, um, and, and I think it, it's not because I'm I'm skeptical, but because I'm so excited about your observation about a kind of default horizontality of uh, critical approaches. And and so the the, the thoughts that this um, raised for me was I, I I really appreciate everything you said uh, about uh, what you were just saying about. Um, you know, staying uh, staying with the side of extraction and and looking downward, and I suppose the the question that I would have uh, maybe are are two. One is an observation um, about um, the the rise of um, surface reading in literary studies uh, over the past decade at the exact same moment as the environmental and geologic turn, and those are two tendencies that feel to me like they run in diametrically opposed directions. Um, and then the other thing I'd, I'd love for you to, to talk about, if, if you have anything to say about it, is that there, there are different modes of being horizontal and different modes of being vertical, right? And so I think uh, a, a kind of close, um, something I've seen people kind of talk about and, and worry about and criticize in the same breath as extractivism is the bird's eye view. Right. So what I'm trying to suggest is that the imperial eye can be both uh, vertical and horizontal. 
right? Um, so can, can you situate that you're really situate your really salutary intervention within those different modes of verticality and different modes of horizontality? Is it clear what I'm asking? Um, yeah, thank yeah, you so much yeah. for your Yeah, no, and I don't, I don't mean to suggest that the horizontal forecloses the vertical or vice versa. And if if that's what came through, I, 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 I you know, that that's not what I would, um, uh, you know, that's not what I subscribe to. I, I think my uh, sort of my concern is more of the degree of emphasis. So it's more a concern about degree. And uh, so the degree of emphasis on the horizontal, on the sweep, on kind of, you know, the the agglomeration of, you know, sort of variety across has been more than uh, sort of a more deep rooted uh, or even site specific. So, uh, which doesn't take away the horizontal gaze or imply that, you know, the imperial eye is not, necessarily uh, it, it doesn't um, sort of exclude the vertical. But in terms of thinking about the site specific, and which gets me back to the question of what does not move, right? Uh, to take that in uh, calls for much more of a sort of a verticality. Again, I'm using verticality in, you know, sort of, Perhaps metaphorically or a little bit, uh, but but you know it, my, my emphasis is on 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 the site specific. It, it is in a way on on um, on on the hyper local, you know, which um, does that doesn't translate to easy or, or escapes notice because be it in terms of languages which do not circulate. Right, texts which do not circulate, right, and this kind of comes through when you think about a complex, uh, which is very, very, very site specific. So, what makes up that complex? So, I think that 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 is what my my focus was on. If that speaks to, I I, I mean, I understand the the concern that you are you know thinking uh, raising about. Uh, kind of making these very sharp distinctions between the horizontal and the vertical, and I don't think one necessarily precludes or excludes the other, right? But I think it's the degree of emphasis and what uh, something that is more vertical. And to think about the vertical as something that aligns more with the sedentary is, and that that I think is an um, you know interesting uh, relation to, to to pursue further. Why does the sedentary, how does that uh, connote verticality more than the horizontal? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you all perhaps to think about um, the activism and extractivism, because we've kind of touched on that in various ways in thinking in, in Professor Shafai's paper, for example, about democracy and extractivist sites being a source where you know, activism first emerged and thinking about those sort of very powerful mining trade unions, for example, in Britain that emerged from, um, from those sites. So I want you to think about activism in relation both to as sort of thematically within your own work, but also I'm sort of thinking about Professor Wenzel's uh, remark about, you know, reading literature being, you know, sometimes we pretend that reading literature is a way of um, 
doing something about extractivism. So also the limits of our own kind of relationship to activism. Uh, so perhaps if you, if you maybe not everybody wants to speak about it, but perhaps if you have anything to say about it, it would be really interesting to hear what you have to say about activism. Um, well, I'll just say briefly, um, you know, just a little uh, narrative about how I came to this project, which, um, I mean, it was really coming from multiple directions, but um, part of it was working on William Morris in the 19th century and having just finished a book about British socialism and being really interested in, you know, the way that the environmental becomes an important, um, uh, you know, kind of area of concern for British socialists. And um, Morris's family's money came from copper mining, and he divested his um, shares in the copper mine, uh, you know, a few years before he declared himself a socialist. And so um, it was really kind of thinking about his relationship to the, the mine and, um the, the way that he was kind of confronting, you know, um, his family's kind of basis in this incredibly detrimental um, environmental practice, um, you know, that that really made me think about um, centering the project around extraction. So, I mean, I do think, you know, there's a lot of thinkers in the 19th century, like John Ruskin, William Morris, et cetera, who um, uh, really came to... Um, a kind of anti-capitalist position partially through um, their observations of what was happening, you know, environmentally through extraction. But but at the same time, like I, I, um, uh, I'm completely, you know, sensitive to the fact that they're, <laughs> you know, that just reading their literature and saying they thought this isn't, you know, that's not, that's not going to, um, uh, you know, <laughs> that that's not um, going to, and the, the problems that we're all confronting today. But I see us kind of engaged in a long, long-term project really around transforming the ways that we think about the earth and our relation to the earth and our position within it. And so I do think, you know, um, that the work that we do as humanists is, is about this, these kind of long processes of um, transforming uh, relations and modes of thinking. So, um, so that, that's the way I, I mean, I don't see this as a, as a type of, immediate activism, but I guess more of a slow activism. <laughs> Should I jump in? Um, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't want to um, task, cast too skeptical an, an eye uh, at, um, at, at what people in, in my discipline do at the same time um, that, that I think it's worth being circumspect about it. Um, uh, and, and I think that um, the, 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 there is uh, among, um, you know, probably people on, on this call today and, and among many in environmental and energy humanities, just a real desire to do something to address the urgency of the present, right? Um, and uh, I can certainly think of, of moments uh, in my teaching where I was cognizant of something happening in the classroom uh, that, that one might think of as, uh, not um, uh, not activism per se, but but making something happen or, or watching something happen with students. So I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, for example, uh, teaching a course on literature and oil, and a student who had had read this assigned reading over the weekend and and emailed me to say, um, I, I I spent part of the weekend learning to ride a bike because I never want to drive a car again. Right? I mean, that, that's something happening, right? Uh, which which wasn't a, 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 an outcome on the syllabus. Um, 
but but I also want to say a little bit more about why um, precision is important, right? If I'm kind of arguing against this metaphorization and conceptual creep, uh, creep, and and I think that to the extent that what we do in the classroom or on the page has any kind of political impact, I think that it has to, the, the foundation of that impact has to be precision, right? And so throwing that adjective extractivism uh, into that, what I call that litany of badness, um, doesn't really do anything, particularly if it's not um, tied to um, it, it's my sense, right? I, I don't want to be the metaphor police, but 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 I, I think that there's an inverse relationship between uh, the potential political impact of the work that we do and the uh, and the inflation of, of our language. Um, so I, you know, a number of us have have used the word naturalization and historicization. So I guess I'm agreeing with with um, uh, Professor Miller that um, there's something what I know how to do as a literary critic, I think, is to call attention to the ways that things came to be with a sense that they might be otherwise, right? So futures have been naturalized. If they've been naturalized, they could be otherwise, right? And so the question is, is how to work toward that, that otherwise. Great, thank you very much. Um, it might be a good point at which to turn to some of the questions that are coming in. So the first question we have is from Siobhan Carroll. And Siobhan says, thanks everyone. Uh, Jennifer Wenzel's paper anticipated my first question. My second is for those of you who conceived of your projects in extractivist terms, in running across archives on agriculture or other processes that didn't quite seem to fit the extractivist model for those working on the 18th, 19th century improvement or clearance, did you find yourself reaching for a different term or a parallel explanatory concept? And if so, could you speak to it? Does anyone want to take that one on? I can answer that really quickly, not, not so much. In, well, I guess, yeah, in terms of my own work, just an observation that I think maybe 10 years ago, people were talking about uh, what we're talking about now through the lens of extraction or extractivism through the lens of enclosure, right? So enclosing this or that. Um, so uh, yeah. Thank you. Anyone else want to address that question about the, the other terms that we might use? And I'm conscious of that, you know, some, some of you do use extractivism widely in your work as a term, and some of you don't. Um, so perhaps if we hear some other terms that might be useful in terms of thinking about this, um, these processes. Um, well, one thing I would say just um, quickly is that um, I think, you know, as Simon's paper illustrated um, and also some of the work on 19th century guano um, that he was referencing, um, you know, there, there, there is a, um, a way in which, you know, the agriculture and um, mining come together um, in the history of industrial agriculture. And so I think that, you know, it's a super important history and um uh, really excited about um, to hear about Simon's project and also to to think about you know um, bringing that into the past and um, following up on Jennifer Wenzel's point, Carolyn Lesjak has a new book on the long history of enclosure that's trying to think about enclosure as a kind of slow process of environmental violence. Um, so. Uh, um, although you know when we think about enclosure, we often think about agriculture, but um, the one of the things that she she doesn't really get deeply into this, but she does touch on the fact that 
that enclosure also had to do with the way that mining and um, uh, leasing, mineral leasing rights um, worked in the 19th century. So that could be another, you know, way to kind of think about the two of these together. I realize I'm not exactly asking um, or answering Siobhan's question, which is about finding a different concept. I'm more extending extractive into agriculture. But anyway, those were a few thoughts that came to mind. Great. Thank you. Um, thanks, Siobhan, for that question. We'll move on to Matthew Carter's question. Um, he's really interested in how ideas of extractivism can be applied to the study of animal history and animal studies. How applicable does the panel think an extractivist lens can be used to explore animals within the systems of imperial capitalism, particularly when, consider, when one considers the dramatic extinctions and near extinctions of charismatic species in the 19th and 20th century, 20, 20th centuries, so the great orc, quagga, the American bison, the passenger pigeon, etc. So any thoughts in relation to animal studies and extractivism? Yeah, sure, Seven, yeah. Yeah, so um, one thing that comes to mind here is, um, is the emphasis that's already bubbled up in the discussion about um, kind of finitude, um, the calculation of um, futures, especially here, future population stocks, for example, um, uh, which is you know connected to calculations about species breeding and the like. You see this come up in um, the history of industrial um, livestock breeding, right? Uh, but you also see it um, in the history of um, concessions. So um, in the French case, uh, there's a series of concessions that are attributed uh, for um, for whaling on off the West Af French West African coast, and these are for like 40, 50 years. And they come with a calculative apparatus, which is statistical about the probable future size of um, of whaling of whale populations in the North and South Atlantic. So, so I think this maybe speaks a little bit, hopefully, to what what Matthew's asking about. There's a way in which some of the calculative apparatuses, Katayun was alluding to this as well, can be transferred from from one form of extractivism into another, and some of those other forms are about um, or about, um, yeah, uh, uh, animals. Does that make sense? Great. Thanks, Simon. Um, Sukanya? Uh, <clears throat> sorry to jump in, but if anyone else wants to address this question, please go ahead, because my comment is about the question that was asked previously, and I'd raised my hand, but I don't think... Uh, right. I, I, sorry I, about that. <laughs> right. No, 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 no problems. But anyone else wants to address this particular question about animals and extraction? Because I want to go back to the previous uh, question that I think Siobhan had asked about agricultural and mining and that that, that uh, Liz had just touched upon. And I want to, because this is something that was um, that I had in mind uh, during the presentations. So I just want to ask, um, you know, when we consider mining and agriculture together, uh, there is, of course, that great difference in the degree of finitude in terms of resources. I mean, even the, the soil can be replenished, but not quite. But that is totally different from, you know, the, 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 the mineral deposits that absolutely cannot be replenished at all. So I'm, I'm wondering, what do we make of that difference in degree? Again, we come back to the question of degree here, but I think it's important to think about that. And, uh, you know, since we, when we're thinking about exhaustion and, and, and sort of the ways in which you think about it literarily, uh, how does that degree reflect or, uh, you know, um, get reiterated or reflected? I'm just curious about this, because I think it's an important difference to register, it seems to me. 
And I was wondering if anyone had thoughts about that. I mean, I have a, a quick thought about um, like the bison example in particular, right? It, it does not seem to be extractive in the same way as... Um, as coal, I, I haven't read the the Jivan. Um, I don't even know how, if that's how you say it, um, Liz Miller. The the coal question um, text, right? But that that distinction that he makes between farming and um, and and coal. Um, but bison, uh, the 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 extinction of or the the near extinction of bison in, in North America was a program of eradication, right? It was like getting rid of them on purpose, um, which seems to me a different uh, relation than there is a certain amount of coal and um, which might elicit actually ideas of stewardship, right? So if there's a finite amount of coal, what are we going to do with it? Um, so I, 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 I second your, your idea about degrees of finiteness and also attitudes about that finitude, right? Um, is, is that a positive thing or, or a negative thing? And, and how, is it, how is it managed? So I think that could be mapped differently along notions of loss, uh, sort of a prelapsarian yearning, that's one. But then the other is, as you were saying, sort of notions of stewardship, responsibility, responsible stewardship, governance, right? So, I mean, I think it kind of, you know, bifurcates or sort of goes in different directions. And I think it's, a, yeah, that, that seems really interesting and important to kind of track. Seems like we're, we're at a really important moment, I guess, in eco-criticism more generally, where you know, the, these terms which have expanded over the years now need a little bit more specificity, a little bit more definition in terms of marking those boundaries between extractivism and extinction, for example, and, you know, just a little bit more specificity about how we use those terms is, is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Does anybody else want to address the question of extractivism in relation to animal history and animal studies? Please just free, feel free to unmic and, and chip in if you've got any further thoughts on that. Uh, but thank you for that question, Matthew. And um, so we'll move on to Rebecca's uh, question. Rebecca Macklin asks uh, specifically for Professor Banerjee, thank you for your fascinating intervention. I wonder if you can speak about how far an emphasis on groundedness and verticality also necessitates a focus on the communities whose lives are bound up in extracted resources, whether through labor, consumption, or otherwise? And do you have any thoughts on how this might work in terms of literary studies specifically, beyond just looking at representation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that uh, question, uh, Re uh, Rebecca. And um, yes, I, 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 I do think it necessitates the, the, the kind of focus that you're talking about. But uh, also in relation to literary studies or to, to, to sort of apply that focus, what it asks of us as literary scholars, I think, is, is sort of a range of knowledge that we are not necessarily trained for and with. I mean, Liz talked about, you know, it's sort of the, you know, when she referred to the opening of how she begins a book and kind of the, you know, the expanse that she uh, needs to uh, cover both in terms of, of, of history, but also in, in terms of expertise. So there is a fair bit of technical knowledge that comes in. Uh, I mean, when, you know, studying cotton cultivation, for example, or indigo cultivation, I mean, I've had to, uh, I really developed develop this sort of 
obsession or knowledge with soil content, which nothing in literary studies had prepared me for, right? And uh, and fertilizers and, and and the chemical composition of fertilizers and, and and things like that. But 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 you know, it's around these minute differences that the lives of communities turn. Right. So if we have to kind of take all of that into account, it's sort of what kind of knowledge uh, do we necessarily need to acquire? And for me, uh, it has I mean, there, there, there are two things. One is kind of a disciplinary realignment. Uh, where I think not just of literary studies, but in terms of area studies, right? Uh, to think about the kind of um, nested knowledge that that area studies brings about, uh, especially since I mean I'm talking about kind of a more site-specific, grounded, and that is to think then about about the the, the disciplinary variegation that area study offers. But then, okay, so then you have all this technical knowledge. Right. And how how does what is that? How do we recalibrate our literary reading with that technical knowledge? Right. Uh, and, 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 and this for me was is, is, is a challenge to think about. For me, it was I mean, you know, I've, I've thought about you know, kind of denotative reading, which, you know, um, Elaine Friedgood, the, the notion that she um, has uh, so so cogently um, argued for uh, in terms of not just reading figuratively or figurative meaning, but actually going back to uh, looking at the you know the reference, the technical reference that we as literary scholars are trained to not read, or not read entirely, and and to bring that kind of reading practice into play when we read literarily is also a something that slows down reading, which Liz takes me back to your previous book, slow reading, and was wondering if. You had that, you know, any of that, um, you know, sort of those ideas which I, where I know you kind of talked about Morris and, but, but the idea of slow reading, uh, has that in any way? Do you, did was kind of that um, something that played into your methodology with this current? I mean, with the book that's about to be published. Oh, thanks for that, Sukanya. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that question before. Um, so this is just off the top of my head, but um, I would say that I felt like the argument that I was making in this book required um, both a lot of a, a lot of textual examples in order, to, you know, to kind of make a case about genre formation. But at the same time, it also required like, you know, very close attention and close reading to those examples. So I guess I was trying I was trying to find some kind of middle ground here between um, slow reading and close reading, but also having um, you know, multiple examples per per chapter. Um, so I think it was a, a little bit a little bit different than the way I was approaching the works in in that book. But but again, I'm just I hadn't thought about this question before. So thank you for that. I hope that's sort of helpful. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, because um, for, for, in terms of reading practice, uh, it, it's you know I, I read differently now. And and you know uh, that that kind of focus that uh, uh, Rebecca uh, that that you're talking about, yeah, it really uh, you know alters the tempo of reading and writing. Dare I say? But but definitely reading. 
I mean, one thing I would say too, and this goes back to what Simon was saying earlier about all the kind of like memoirs and different types of writing that these mining engineers are producing. I mean, I go back to, you know, Jillian Beer's intervention when, you know, bringing um, evolutionary theory into Victorian literary studies and, and thinking not just about the way that, you know, that Darwin's plots, you know, changed the Victorian novel, but also about the way that Darwin himself is telling the story using the forms that are made available to him through literary history, right? And so, so I think, you know, what you're talking about, Sukanya, in terms of developing these multiple areas of expertise, it really goes both ways, right? Where you can see, I in my work, for example, I can see how, you know, the advent of the buried treasure story in adventure literature in the 19th century absolutely changes, you know, the way and influences the way that people talk about, about mining, um, you know, while at the same time, the explosion of overseas extraction projects, you know, has a, a huge um, impact on the development of that as as a as a literary genre. I think this should probably come as a health warning to any early career environmental uh, humanities people out there about the the vast scales with which we deal, and also the multiple disciplines that you have to try to master. Uh, everything from the sort of biological knowledge and the technical knowledge to legal frameworks and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> slow writing, I notice, is a comment and it's definitely, definitely requires that. Uh, so thank you very much, Rebecca, for your question. We'll move on to uh, Lisa's uh, question, which is to thank you all of the panelists for your thought-provoking discussions. I'm interested in the relationship between the productivity of analyzing, on the one hand, resource extraction or underground mineral extraction as categories, such as Professor Miller discussed, and secondly, an analysis of the specificity of the extraction of different minerals, such as soft phosphate or oil. And this may be a question for Professor Miller or the other panelists as well. How have you approached the benefits of adopting a frame of either a specific mineral or a broader frame of extractivism, or perhaps ways in which you've worked with both frames? And I guess that's the sort of tension that we were talking about between on the one hand, you know, you know, if we try to produce something on a sort of global scale, we may miss the local and the micro historical scale that we've talked about. Equally, if we try to focus on on one uh, mineral or, or, you know, one type of mineral, we miss the sort of wider uh, framework. So perhaps, Professor Miller, I'll ask you to kick us off on that. Sure. I mean, one thing that comes to mind uh, as an example of this is um, Sukanya's work on indigo cultivation and um, in India. And uh, what's the play that you wrote on Sukanya? I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, Neil, Neil Darpon. Neil Darpon. I remember seeing you give a conference paper on that play and talking about how earlier work that had been done on it it was as though it didn't matter that it was an indigo plantation, right? That it could have been anything that they were growing, right? And so you were really interested in the specificities of, you know, indigo cultivation um, and, you know, the the kind of labor practices and um, the way that shapes what happens in the play. And I mean, uh, Professor Shafi, you were also speaking about this with oil too, right? That the um, that the properties of oil kind of, you know, reduce the... Um, possibilities for workers' invention into the production processes. So I don't know if you want to pick up with this question, but I'd be curious to hear more about that. You know, I don't use the extractivism framing. So while I take seriously the specificity of the uh, properties of the of, of oil, 
um, that's not to exclude, um, you know, what was happening with coal in the process of figuring out how to to make the the oil because at that at that particular at that early moment, coal, for example, was the dominant source of energy in the world. Um, so it's more about leaving you know assumptions and categories open, um, and sort of following where you know they take you. So so following the oil, of course, we are learning about. The, produ the, the production of knowledge around the oil and those specifics, but at the same time thinking about um, intersections or or uh, rivalries with other sources of energy. In my case, um, so it's both local and multiscalar at the same time. I don't know if I'm answering it. In yeah, but that's my thought. Thank you for that. Anyone else want to come in on that question of the sort of specificity of particular minerals against there's another, yeah, sorry, Simon, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> I would I would also emphasize like that um, the, how productive it is to follow specificities, um, but also how often by following them, they'll take you beyond the, the immediate frame. So for example, um, because, because of phosphates mineral properties, um, it makes miners ill, especially with lung illnesses in the same way at, geographically dispersed sites. Um, and because miners are circulating between sites, because they know how to mine this stuff, um, they bring with them knowledges about mitigating illness. Um, so that's something that's specific in some ways. But then um, miners are also circulating out of the um, phosphate archipelago into coal mining, for example, in metropolitan France after the First World War, because there's a massive manpower shortage. So um, Moroccan and Algerian and Tunisian miners are able to leave the phosphate network and go to northern France to mine coal uh, instead. So it kind of over, overlaps right there. And you find yourself falling out of what you thought you were working on and <laughs> working on, on something different. So I think there's a tension there. So you have to add medical knowledge to um, that list of other knowledges that we had to acquire as well. Uh, thank you, Simon. Uh, we'll just move on. There's just a couple more questions and then we'll we'll finish up. Um, so an anonymous attendee has posted a question. Thanks for all this fascinating discussion. Uh, Sukanya Banerjee, I'm interested in this idea of grounding and the risks of extracting indigenous alternative knowledges. Would you see it as helpful to, br to bring post-developmental thinking, such as Arturo Escobar's pluriversality, into dialogue with the kind of grounded thinking you describe? Yes, yes, certainly. But um, I would also emphasize kind of not, um, I guess I sort of shy away from thinking about the exceptionality of any particular uh, uh, knowledge uh, grounded as it is, but uh, not to think about it in terms of exceptionality because that then sort of, you know, replays certain um, uh, frames of neo-orientalism or exoticization or or kind of uh, you know sort of uh, detaches those modes of knowledge production from history um and um, so I, I i would be wary of that but yes certainly in in terms of thinking about uh the the, the pluriverse is yeah is um something that is very helpful yeah great thank you and thanks for that question and finally, a uh, question close to my own heart here. This is somewhat, this is Joan Passy's question. This is somewhat harking back to the Blue Humanities panel earlier today. 
But I was wondering about your thoughts on the extent to which extraction narratives at sea or watery places might be different from land-based extraction narratives. Is there something specific about blue, place, blue spaces that changes or alters our understanding of the implications or rhetoric of extraction? Do seas lend themselves to a sense of verticality in a way that might be useful? No, we're thinking mostly, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I don't really um, have much to say about this, but but I'm reminded of um, Stephanie Lemonager's observation in the beginning of Living Oil, that the technological development of the capacity to uh, go into outer space happens at the same time and with some of this kind of same technology and, 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 and personnel of, of developing the capacity to go to the deep sea, right? So again, it's kind of thinking between those, those kinds of, of verticality. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of, um, for all intents and purposes, o ocean curious, but ocean blind. <laughs> I don't have much to say about it. Uh, that's smart. Thank you, thank you. Um, anyone else want to come in on that, or should we? We we need to wind up shortly anyway. Uh, um, but if anyone is, yeah. Oh, I'll I'll just say something really quickly, which is that um, one thing that struck me in this conversation as an interesting parallel with some of the work happening in oceanic studies and blue humanities is the, um, you know, kind of discussion. At, of terrestrial bias and the way, you know, that the um, humanities have, have found it um, difficult to, to um, kind of expand into ocean environments and their thinking. And, and it's, for me, this resonates with our discussion of verticality, right? And um, a kind of, I don't know, I guess, horizontal bias maybe, or uh, a tendency to um, think in terms of movement across land instead of, um, you know, digging digging into land. So uh, an interesting maybe conjunction between the two. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you very much for those thoughts. Um, well, as extractivist capitalism is already finding out, all good things must come to an end. Um, and this round table is uh, no exception. I'd like to thank uh, Professor Banerjee, Professor Miller, Professor Wenzel, Dr. Jackson, and Professor Shafi for participating in this round table and making it such a productive and enjoyable conversation. Um, I'd also like to thank Megan and Sarah for organizing this very rich and stimulating symposium, uh, which is part of the Environmental Humanities Strand at University College Dublin. And I'm going to invite them. Yeah, big applause if you can. If you can. Yeah, thank you. Uh, whatever means you have to show your applause. And um, I'm going to invite them now to uh, move us on to the closing remarks of the symposium. Many thanks. Um, what a fantastic roundtable to finish our symposium on. Um, thank you so much. Um, even though it is almost 2 a.m. here in Australia, I just feel so incredibly energised by this conversation. So I just want to give another round of applause to the roundtable panellists. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, Megan and I would like to close by thanking all our wonderful contributors. Firstly, the speakers who have generated such a stimulating discussion over the last couple of days. Um, one of our priorities in organizing this online symposium was to make it as accessible as possible, both in terms of access to closed caption papers across different time zones, um, but also to allow participants to sit with papers and their ideas for a longer period of time than the usual conference format allows. So we are so grateful to the speakers for taking the time to share their pre-recorded papers with us. 
Um, special thanks to the panel conveners and chairs, uh, Ian Davidson, Elise Bulfin, Giacomo Savani, Hannah Bost, and John Brannigan for curating a dynamic and evolving conversation over the last two days. And to the almost 500 audience members who have registered and attended and asked such generous and generative questions, um, we cannot thank you all enough. Many thanks to Sheree Deckard, Director of the Environmental Humanities Research Strand, who's been such a keen supporter and collaborator of the symposium since we first proposed the topic to her. We know she's gutted that she hasn't been able to attend over the last couple of days. Um, and we'd also like to give special thanks again to Ricky Shun, Valerie Norton, Michael Liffey, Deborah Shrivers, and John Matthews for all their administrative assistance in support of this event. Uh, thank you to Typewell for providing the closed, cap uh, closed captioning for all our live panels. Um, and this event would not have been possible without the generous support of UCD Humanities Institute seed funding and the ERC funded Southam project. Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank Megan. Um, I couldn't have asked for a more brilliant or conscientious colleague to work with. And I've enjoyed collaborating on this project with you so much. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, and thank you to all of our speakers and for everyone who has tuned in over the past two days. Um, Sarah and I have some future plans for the community we've formed this week. Uh, publication plans include a special issue of a journal, which we will be in touch about very soon. Um, but we're also very keen to create a pedagogical toolkit on the theme of empire and ecologies that we want to host on our open access um, website. So if anyone has any resources that they would like to share from articles to blogs to teaching syllabi, um, please do get in touch with us. Um, thank you again for an inspiring couple of days. And if you haven't already, um, don't forget to follow UCD's Environmental Humanities Strand um, on Twitter. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.